Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey, everyone. This is Todd. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. I hope you're all well. I think you're really going to like this episode. Uh, Mark and I are sitting down with award-winning author Gina Ray LaServa to talk about her recently released book called Feasting Wild in Search of the Last Untamed Food. It's a great book, and it's an even better conversation that we're having with Gina Ray this week. If you're not familiar with Gina Ray, she's fascinating. She's a geographer. She's an environmental anthropologist. Uh, she's been a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow and she holds master's degrees from both Yale University School of Forestry and the University of Cambridge. And uh, she recently wrote this book called Feasting Wild. It's broad ranging. It's like part travelogue and part storytelling about her traveling around the world, looking at relationships between cultures and individuals and wild food and the relationship between subsistence and luxury and so I think you're really going to like this conversation. And I think you would like the book. You can find it just about anywhere you find books. It's called Feasting Wild, Gina Ray Lacerva. And uh, she takes you all over the place from the restaurant Noma in Denmark to hunting moose in Sweden communally. I mean, there's just a little bit of everything in the book. And there's a whole lot of conversation to talk about. And so it's kind of a, an exploration to our relationship as humans, not only to our food, but to the natural world. Check out Gina Rayla's service, Feasting Wild, wherever you can, and let us know what you think of this episode. And if you haven't checked out Modern Carnivore's most recent podcast with Jenny Lai and Alex Kim, do that as well. It's one of my favorite recent episodes out there. Mark um, just released it there a week or two ago, and it's a great conversation uh, over on the Mod Carn podcast, wherever you listen to that. And so here it is. Mark and I are sitting down with author Gina Ray LaServa. Thanks for listening. A few weeks ago, I came across a new book release called Feasting Wild by Gina Ray LaServa. And uh, it was a book I knew I needed to pick up. And so absolutely thrilled to make a connection with Gina Ray and to be able to talk to you on the podcast this week. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. You're quite welcome. And I'm also really excited to have my good friend Mark Norquist on the podcast this week with Modern Carnivore. Mark, how are you today? I'm I'm doing well. You know, when you told me you were going to have Gina Ray on the podcast, I said, I got to be on this one too, because this sounds like a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So Gina Ray, like you have a fascinating background, just like the intersection of some of the professional work you've been doing with environmental anthropology and geography and like how that intersects with wild food and your travels and everything. What's that like for you? Tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to write the book. Sure. Um, so I actually, my, my academic background for a long time was studying natural disasters. Um, so I was researching the tsunami in Indonesia um, in 2005 and looking at the different ways that the nat natural systems intersect with human culture 
um, in creating vulnerability to different natural disasters. So when I decided to write a book, um, it was actually sort of an experiment. I turned 30 and I said, you know, I've always wanted to try writing. I'll try and write a book and we'll see what happens. And I really thought that I was going to do something related to natural hazards. Um, and then this food thing just got hold of me, this wild food thing, and I couldn't let it go. Um, and so now, six years later, the result is this book, Feasting Wild. Um, but I think my background in looking at these larger systems, trying to understand how ecology and humans interact, how culture is impacted by the natural world, and then we impact the natural world back, um, that really gave me a good baseline to go into this research, I think. Yeah, that's a fascinating background. And I mean, that's, I'm just going to say right off the bat that, you know, I read the book there. It's really broad ranging. There's so many cool themes to it. And I think for the audience here, you know, we, we're an outdoor oriented community that's geared toward mentorship and community building for hunting and foraging and fishing. And we have these incredible wild food opportunities here in North America. And then to like read your book with the scope of it, like across kind of like humanities path and journey through time, but also just in other parts of the world. I thought it was really cool. And it's it's a fun adventure. Tell us a little bit about the book itself and some themes and how you kind of went about it in terms of thinking how that was going to be told as a story. Yeah, so the thing that kind of piqued my interest in the very beginning was, you know, as something as simple as going to the grocery store and seeing that wild fish was so much more expensive, wild caught fish than farmed fish. And it just started me thinking about, you know, why is this that this free kind of wild product that we've eaten for 99% of our history was suddenly more expensive um, and something that you essentially had to have money in order to afford. Um, and at the same time, I saw more and more of my friends becoming interested in, you know, learning how to forage or how to hunt. I grew up in New Mexico, so there was always some hunting going around going on around me. Um, but I, I started thinking about it. Yeah, you know, for 99% of our history as humans, this is what we did. And how has that, you know, in this very short period of time of sort of modern civilization, really, most people will never eat anything that's wild. And I just found that to be such a strange, you know, reversal in, in kind of what it meant to be human in a way. So that that's, started the book and it ended up being a book that spans, you know, thousands of years. <laughs> um, it spans many different continents. Um, I kind of travel all over the world looking at this topic. And, and so it, it ended up having a much larger scope in a way than I expected. But, um, but I think it was really important to try and understand that long view, that long history, particularly as, as people, that's how we evolved. So, so much of our kind of modern day culture and the way we go about things is rooted in being hunter gatherers. We don't realize it, you know, because we think that we, that we exist in these sort of civilized state, but you know, so much of our motivations, the, the ways that we feel happy living in the world, um, to me, you can look back and say, yeah, that's because we, we used to hunt communally. We used to go out into the forest and look for our food and that provided a sense of, um, anxiety relief and, and community. So, there's a lot of things there that you could kind of pull from deep history into the modern era, which I found really fascinating. What did what have you found in talking with people on when you say something like that about how much of our modern day culture is influenced by the history of being hunters and gatherers? Do people get that? Are they curious or are they confused? 
Um, I think it's some of both. You know, I think people who live in cities and say like, ew, nature, like I don't want anything to do with that. Why would you think that that's, you know, <laughs> part of what would make me happy? Don't necessarily get it. But, um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily the first person to say this. I think things like the paleo diet, um, that, you know, there's stuff about sort of modern movement, um, exercise where you just go out and like climb over logs and things like that, you know. So I think this is definitely in the culture right now, people are thinking about this. Um, but yeah, I think it is, it's surprising to people. You know, I've, I've been using the example of, it makes a lot of sense that we're all eating bread and carbs uh, right now during the pandemic, during this stressful moment, because those were limiting in 99% of our history as hunter-gatherers. We didn't eat a lot of fat. We didn't eat a lot of um, carbohydrates. Uh, game animals, as you know, are very lean. And so people kind of, I think that's an interesting way for people to say, oh yeah, like this is something I'm craving because for most of my evolution, it didn't exist in our diets and it was something that we always were kind of looking for. But yeah, I think, I think it is, it is hard for people to understand that, that we're sort of, we're still wild animals despite all of our desire to be, you know, uh, civilized humans. When you think of it in terms of when we started probably maybe 1.9 million years ago or however long it was starting to eat protein and, and meat and to go that long and then to have so many changes. It's really only recently that our food systems have changed and revolutionized so much. I mean, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, people have been asking me, when did the shift start that people stopped eating wild foods? Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that you can point to one time period. There was 10,000 years ago with um, a large climate change shift that happened and then at the rise of agriculture. And that obviously really, really transformed our relationship to eating wild food. And we don't really know why that transition happened. Um, it was potentially a bit of an accident, um, various factors. Or you can look at sort of the colonial period when um, you had people start to lose touch with the wild foods that were around them because of industrialization and things like that. Or you can look at the last 50 years where we've lost, you know, even more connection to wild nature as we've become more urbanized, as people rely more and more on sort of a large industrial food system. So, you know, I think it's been kind of a slow, long shift that's that's happened over the years. One of the coolest things that I thought you had in the book was this recurring theme, the relationship between kind of like subsistence, eating wild food as we develop as humans, and then the appeal, the fetishnesses of luxury. And so there's this like tension between the subsistence and then luxury food. And so in your research from that, Gina Ray, like what did you find interesting? Were there recurring like attitudes or themes to that over time? Where does it go from just like, hey, we're eating wild food because this is our journey to that part of it that's like, hey, we're craving this because it's a luxury? Right. And, and I think that's such an interesting theme that I found over and over again was places where wild food was a subsistence and then for various reasons transformed into something that was more of a luxury or kind of had an elevated status. So a food might be associated with poverty because there was a huge abundance of it. I'm thinking of certain birds like the prairie hen, I think, in on Long Island Sound. You know, it was associated with, with poor people. Lobster is another one that people often say was fed to poor people and then kind of had this elevated status as it became rarer. You know, what's, what's interesting for me, a few things. One, ab about 
a billion people still rely on wild food for subsistence. Um, so there's still a huge portion of the world that primarily gets their calories from hunting, fishing, or foraging. Um, and this is a really important source, particularly as climate change impacts crops and various things like that, people are going to be relying on this food source even more. So, you know, for us in the Western world, it, it has sort of become a luxury for a lot of us that we can go out and hunt and fish. And, and maybe it's not a luxury because maybe it's very much um, a necessity in our hearts and in how we want to live our lives and experiencing that kind of real food. But it's a luxury in the sense that if we didn't have that access, we would be able to find food. Whereas in a lot of communities around the world, that's not the case. But, you know, when I started doing this research, I thought, oh, this must be a very, you know, recent change where people are eating this out of luxury. And what I found was actually there's various time periods. So in um, the Middle Ages, kings really, they eating wild animals for a king in the Middle Ages was like the highest form of power. And it was a way to show that you had wealth and status. And so it actually became kind of a luxury to eat something like a wild boar. Poor people weren't allowed to hunt them. They were, they were told not to be in the forests. And actually the, the laws against hunting as a poor person or non, someone who wasn't nobility, you know, were, I mean, it was crazy. You could be castrated or beheaded or thrown out of the country just for poaching animals. You know, so even back in the 1100s, there was some sense that these wild animals were special and only the food of people, you know, who had a certain class or wealth or status. And then you see this again throughout various time periods. Green turtle uh, in the Caribbean, for a long time, there were so many green turtles when Columbus arrived to the Americas that it was actually food that was used to feed um, enslaved peoples. Um, it was a really important protein source for the plantation economy. And then within 100 years, the, the abundant turtles were quite readily decimated by this, this economy. And people in England started eating them at these things called turtle frolics. And it was like the highest form of food that you could have was this wild green turtle from the Caribbean. It was served in these soups, um, you know, at uh, government banquets. So that was interesting, too, to see that this food that had been associated with pirates and slaves was suddenly associated with the mayors of various, you know, towns and things like that. So yeah, so it it's, was really fascinating to see. And I, I kind of came up with this idea of like a touristic appetite. So, you know, that you, you would have almost like any kind of tourist where you pop into a place, you don't know the place, you don't know the ecology, but you're eating that wild food as a kind of an experience of being in this place. So I appreciate the work that you guys do because it's, it's very much connected to actually knowing a place, going back there, knowing a community around that place. Um, instead of just sort of popping in because, you know, hunting is the newest trend or something like that. Yeah. Mark, what do you think? Do you have any comments or, or questions for Gina Ray? The the one thing I, I love in the prologue, you, you uh, for not being a hunter, and that was going to be my question. And right before we, we went live on this, you said you're, you're not a hunter. I was curious. Not yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, exactly. And, and we'll have to change that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you out hunting sometime. But um you, I think you nailed it in, in, in the beginning of the book, and I just put down the quote here. You said, hunting and gathering divert us from the clock and demand we look at everything and nothing all at once. And I just thought that was, you, you really uh, got it there. And I think you, as the journey went on through writing this book, obviously you went out with hunters, and I think you understand the experience now, which I always think is a great perspective for someone who doesn't hunt yet having that understanding of what it's about. And I think that's the 
the ritual of it that's really special to hunters that's hard to describe to people. But you did a really good job, I think, in, in the very few words there. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I've spent a lot of time being outside. I grew up on 20 acres in New Mexico. And, you know, we lived on this winding dirt road. And I used to joke that I didn't have any friends because nobody wanted to come drive our dirt road. Um, and so I spent a lot of time just by myself wandering around the arroyos and, you know, observing nature. And, and so I think I inherently had that quality that hunters have, which is that ability to kind of be patient and be curious and be in observation while they're out on the hunt. And, and, you know, I think hunters are some of the last great naturalists among us because they do spend so much time in the natural world learning to read the signs, you know, that you can find out where an animal's going from a broken branch is amazing. And so I, I do think that, yeah, that kind of idea of being out there and being so present in the experience because that's really what it requires. You can't be looking at your phone. You can't be thinking about the laundry you got to do. You have to just be present when you're out hunting um, as, as well as foraging. And, and I think we've lost that so much in modern life. You know, this is a book about wild food, but it's a book about so much more. It's a book about kind of the present moment and how we all exist in this world. And so for me, yeah, I think the act of hunting in that way is, so special to be able to have that experience of being present with yourself in an environment. And and that's where I think with that presence of it, you know, another thing you, you talked about in there is how, you know, cooking and the flavors of the wild game, that really is how so much wisdom has been passed down from one generation to the next. And so I, I just, I like how you have the historical context and how important to central role the hunter and gathering played in has played in our entire existence until this very last brief period of time so sorry sorry to, to talk over your oh no it's that's great i'm glad you mentioned that i was going to mention this later in the conversation but later on in the book the last chapter when you're talking about hunting gina ray you go into like the genesis of the verb to hunt i think it was banar banor something like that in terms of a verb, but also a transitory state. And I like how you described it as something that is up until this point, like a communal liturgy, you know, it's modern and it's archaic. It was really poetic how you described it. And I felt that way, even though it's hard to articulate sometimes, but the way you did it, I thought was cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have read um, Meditations on Hunting by Jose Ortega y Gasset. Uh, he was a Spanish philosopher, I think writing in like the 30s. Um, but I found his book really interesting and inspiring because he has a very poetic way of talking about um, hunting. But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this, this verb, which is, you know, the root of the Latin root of the word to hunt, it talks about hunting as being, you know, an action and an experience, but also something that acts back on you, right? So you are changed by the very act of going out and hunting, which I think is so much part of this is that you have a relationship to the animals that you're hunting, to the experience. You know, and I think in this country, there's a lot of prejudice around hunting because we have these reality TV shows and these ideas that hunters are just like bent on destruction and wanting to go out and kill as many things as they can. And some of that does come from our history where we really have decimated a lot of wildlife. But a lot of that decimation came when it was part of a larger market economy. So there's a chapter that looks at all the wild birds that we used to eat. And it was incredible. You could go to a, a market, a food market in New York City um, in the 1800s, and there'd be 100 different kinds of wild 
birds. I mean, birds I'd never even heard of and people mm -hmm. were buying them and eating them. I mean, up until even 200 years ago, at least half the American diet came from the wild. And so we built the current wealth and of this country and the culture of this country on hunting. You know, we, we were able, all of these birds that we killed for the market fueled a certain period of American history and cuisine and culture. And it's, you know, we've all heard the passenger pigeon story, but it was really surprising to me to hear of all these other different wild birds. And then out of that, a lot of our conservation laws came. So another theme in this book is looking at how our desire for wild food, our interest in it actually led to some of the earliest conservation laws. So as I mentioned, the kings in medieval England, they passed what is effectively the first forest conservation laws in the world by, you know, preventing people from, from hunting in these forests or preventing the forest from being cut down for other uses. We can maybe critique some of their methodology, but uh, it, it is interesting that so much of our desire to protect wild places is really rooted in our stomachs and our desire to eat. So what I'm interested in as we move forward in the world with this conversation is how do we use that desire in people to continue that conservation and to make that conservation as equitable as possible, because it does have a history of being rooted in colonial and racist ideas. So how do we move forward in a more evolved way, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, like, that's a good point. And I think that, like, one of the things that I thought in your book you did a great job with, Gina Ray, was on that equity side, like, really talking about the historic role and the importance and huge significance of women and indigenous knowledge and culture and passing this down. Talk a bit about that, if you would. You got several examples of, of that in your book, but anything that think uh, you want to highlight for this conversation for the listeners? Sure. I mean, um, there's a lot to say on that topic, but uh, I think part of what is, it's a detriment to all of us. I mean, we've, we all lost when colonialism destroyed 95% of Native American people in this country. We all lost that environmental knowledge and wisdom that they had, some, some of which is, is being recovered now, which is really wonderful to see. There's a lot of really great um, indigenous food sovereignty stuff happening. So people are relearning their, their past culture in terms of how to you know, hunt and gather certain, certain things. Um, but a lot of it is lost because it wasn't written down and it was, you know, it was learned by doing. So you learned how to do, you know, how to prepare. I found some really great recipes for, um, I think it was prairie chicken, like baked in clay, you know, and um, I mean, just amazing. And so I think even from a culinary perspective, we lost these incredible dishes because the people who knew how to cook them were decimated and what was effectively a genocide, you know, so how do we return from that? How do we uplift people who are, trying to recover this lost knowledge in their cultures? Um, how do we give them access to land that was effectively stolen? It's not a comfortable conversation, you know, and I think um, we we all have a lot of work to do to to get there, to start acknowledging that we all live on land that was taken hundreds of hundreds of years ago, may not have even been our ancestors. I mean, my ancestors didn't come to this country until, you know, um, the early 19th century. But Anyway, I think it's really important. But yeah, there's so much cool stuff. I mean, one of the things I love was Native American agricultural practices were really intertwined with also providing space for wild animals. So there was burning of the forests, which helped to create browse for deer and various animals. Um, they effectively had these kind of semi-domesticated semi turkeys who sort of lived at the edge of agricultural fields. Some of their agricultural practices, it is estimated that they were 10 times more productive than the British 
uh, agriculture that was brought to the Americas and replaced native um, cultivation. So I think, you know, they, they didn't just think of wild nature as separate and as something that was pristine and should be left alone, but as something that you had a relationship with that you could actually tend to, that you could make more abundant than it was on its own. So there is some evidence that, you know, all the abundant um, game birds and, and game animals that European colonists found when they arrived in this country were a direct result of Native American land um, management practices. So I'm, I'm also really interested in that. How do we start managing our wildlands in a way where, you know, I think we have this feeling like we have to just step back and let nature be, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Mm-hmm. But then also, how do we not have the hubris to to think that we can go in and completely understand how to how to do something in a wild space, right? Like, there, there's a, often, oh, it looks like Mark has something to say <laughs> about that. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I mean, I, I think it's where I was going to go with it is, is um, I've heard a lot of different people over the years say exactly like you referenced, uh, you know, the best way to take care of it is for us to just be separated from it. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think we need to be part of it. But it's understanding. So we oftentimes refer in the in the recreation space, hunting and fishing are referred to as the consumptive sports or the consumptive mm. activities because they're taking something out. And I think it's that it's that understanding as a as a hunter, angler, forager is there's that balance of consumption with conservation that is so important. And and I I believe that is the way forward. Because you you talk about it in your book and you've referenced it here a few minutes ago is that that connection through our stomach and that understanding and appreciation for wild places by harvesting out of those places creates an elevated appreciation for and I believe then a deeper connection for conservation and ensuring it's a healthy environment. Right. I mean, if you've never eaten something wild and you don't know the sort of delicious amazing experience how why would you care about saving a wild place right yeah you know exactly you know and i think the other thing i I liked about you're looking at the historical context of things was referencing terminology you've got a wonderful grasp of the english language and some of the words i had to look up in your book when i was reading it but um i had to look them up too so (laughs) don't worry about it (laughs) <laughs> the reference on how, you know, the historical perspective uh, in the origins of waste and how these undeveloped lands were referred to as waste or uh, unimproved, which is a, a term that I think even I think in modern uh, society, it's, you know, usually referred to maybe as an unimproved road. But I think if you think of the context of those words, they infer this absence of structure of value, unless we control them, we manipulate them, which I think is really interesting to think about in the context of conservation. So I I was just wondering, did you, you know, in your, in your research, did you interview and and talk to, to many uh, modern hunters in North America at all? Because I know you went all over, you were in Africa and then Europe and Poland and Sweden and then here with Native American talking about that, but I'm just curious if you got that context at all. No, and I, I, you know, I think it's definitely um, lacking in the book is that I didn't talk to enough American hunters, and maybe that will be my next book. Um, you know, the the main hunting that I did was in Sweden, and we went uh, moose hunting there, and that 
you know, that was really interesting for me because it's a communal hunt. So it's not just individuals going out, but it's very much set up around, you know, sitting in a blind and someone else is flushing the moose out of the woods. Um, and then they get together as a community and butcher the animal. So back to your point about looking at, you know, words and ideas, I, I think what surprised me writing this book was just how these ideas can really stick around for a very long time. I mean, some of the ideas that we have today about what conservation should be, about what it means to be a hunter, are rooted in Roman and Greek thought, you know, and and the fact that it's still kind of, whether it's explicit or not, it's still put into some of the ideas that we have. Um, so one of the other things I look at is how the rise of the national parks movement in the Americas was then kind of taken to the African setting. And I did a bunch of research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And you see that some of these ideas from the 1800s are still being implemented, but they're not successful and they don't take into account local people's needs. And they're not successful in that they are both detrimental to people who live there and they're not necessarily protecting the animals that we're trying to protect. So, you know, I think it's so important to kind of interrogate these ideas that we take for granted and try and you know, transform them in ways that we might not have thought about before. That was my favorite part of the book. I, I loved, for so many reasons, I mean, there were a lot of levels to why I liked that part of the book. I really appreciated coming out of that, the complexity of, of actually practicing conservation on the ground in, in a situation like that, and just how hard it is, and just what's at stake for local communities. It was just great. It really, I think for somebody that's just been kind of in a, a mindset of North America and how we do things here, like it really opens eyes to what has to happen and what the factors are on the ground in other places to actually get in, you know, to, to do things like that. So, yeah, it's very, I mean, conservation is super complicated and, and it's a very, in some ways, it's a very deadly career to go into. I mean, there's there's a lot of forces that do not want us to conserve spaces, whether that's um, logging, mining, other kinds of extractive things. I mean, in many ways, hunting is, as you said, it's a consumption versus conservation consumptive sport, but it's a renewable consumptive sport, right? Like if we manage things correctly, we, we should have those animals available to us in perpetuity, whereas something like cutting down a forest, that's not the case. So, you know, I think that's part of the problem with conservationism, conservationists, is that there's a lot of forces against us at this moment. And I really, I sort of think we need all approaches. You know, I think it's really important to critique what we're doing and to be self-aware, but we also kind of need it all right now because we're up against so many different challenges. Conservationists get murdered around the world all the time, which, you know, people don't really realize for doing the work that they're doing. But yeah, it's it's such a complicated challenge because everyone on some level wants modern life. They want this this sort of standards of life that we have, running water, constant electricity, being able to buy things. You know, even people in in the most remote areas of the of the Congo basin forest where I was, like they want all of those things. They they like fashion, they like, you know, motorcycles. And yet from the outside, we come in and we say, no, but your animals are more important than that, right? We, you know, as an outsider who has all of those things, it's very easy for us to say, but you're losing this heritage and we must protect it. You know, so it's, it's a really big conflict because the forests are 
really threatened. I mean, what's interesting in the Congo Basin is that hunting is actually threatening the regeneration of the forest because so many of these animals um, are seed dispersers. So they'll, you know, elephants in particular, they'll eat fruit and then they'll travel a couple miles and they'll defecate and then that tree grows up there. And without those species, those animals, the forest doesn't reproduce in the same way. So you're, you're changing the whole forest ecology through increased hunting. And again, in the Congo, it's another, it's also very complicated because they've had a series of really horrific uh, civil wars and there's a lot of automatic weapons and uh, in the forest, rebels hiding out. There's sort of this whole underground market economy that is providing meat for people in the cities. So it's no longer just a subsistence food to eat wild animals. It's become something that you go to a restaurant to eat um, and, and a lot of violence. But what was also fascinating was looking at our you know, as I mentioned, the history of birds in the United States, there's so many similar parallels. There was a huge kind of underground market for wild birds in the Americas. People would um, label, you know, pheasants as owls and ship them overnight. And, you know, the wardens were getting bribed to let these things pass where there were people were hunting birds illegally. So, you know, you can kind of see these things happen over and over throughout history. And, uh, I don't really know what the, the answer is, but I think it's important that we start having these conversations. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that you hit on a key topic that, that there's a lot of tools in that toolbox, right? It's not a one size fits all. Conservation happens on, the, on the, a lot of levels, but ultimately it happens on the ground in local communities. And so having approaches that are customized to those communities and understanding the implications of what happens, like you're talking about seed dispersal with the animals, the interconnectedness of all that. It's, it's really uh, important. I'd like to get back to the, this idea of wild food is like, here's one question. Wild food is this luxury kind of thing. In the beginning of the book, you're in, I think in, in the restaurant at Noma in Denmark and, you know, really one of the best restaurants in the world and so there's the psychological part of wild food and rarity, I think, that people are appealed to, right? I was reading, um, are you familiar with the book Physiology of Taste by, uh, there was this French author named Briat Savarin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he wrote yeah. this book like 200 years ago about, it's pretty fascinating, by the way. So he's talking about stuff like- You're getting real nerdy here, huh, Todd? <laughs> yeah, I know. So here's the point. Like, I, And then we'll move away from this because it's like really cool. He was talking about the senses of taste and, and what's associated with that and everything. But then there was this one conversation where he was talking to his friend and he said, hey, good news. There's this new thing coming out and it's going to be very affordable. And his friend said, well, will anybody want it if it's really affordable? You know what I mean? So there was this like psychological thing about about the demand of something that you can't have. I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And again, that's one of these things, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the show, that it's it's like a result of our uh, evolution that still really impacts humans. So kind of our brains were built to find that signal in the noise. So we get really excited by things that are rare. You know, if you hear the same, you have the same stimulus over and over again, it doesn't really make an impact on your brain, but then you have something that's new and weird and different and exotic. Um, and your brain is suddenly lights up and it's like, yes, I want that rare thing. So I think it's, it's very much built into everything that we do. I mean, why, why do we want diamonds? Is it because they're particularly interesting or they're just rare? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then at the same time, I think people are weird because we also really like things to be the same, right? Like we have a hard time with change. We have a hard time if things are too different. Um, and so somewhere in the book, I kind of talk about that. Like 
we we feel most comfortable with the domesticated world, but we sort of crave that wild um, spark every once in a while, that kind of experience of our own mortality or something to, to bring us out of our everyday lives. And I think that's part of what these restaurants like Noma are kind of capturing. You know, one of the other things that like blew my mind writing this book was just how little diversity there is in our modern food system. So, you know, humans used to use something like 30,000 different wild plants for food or medicine. And now our diets primarily come from 30. Um, and out of those 30, really, it's only three that we eat on a daily basis, you know, which is rice, wheat, and corn. And so if you think about our bodies, our brains, the kind of micronutrients that we're missing, you know, in many ways, we're less healthy now than we, we were as hunter-gatherers. Um, or even like, you know, a lot of when I would interview people in Congo asking them, why do you eat wild animals? It was a taste thing. It was a flavor thing. It wasn't because I'm so poor, I have to eat a wild animal. It was that this, you know, antelope tastes different than this bush pig. And they're both very delicious. And why would I eat chicken every day, day in and day out, you know? And so I think, we really have a paucity of flavors in our life. And so someplace like Noma can, can offer just a, a taste, just a glimpse of the many different flavors that are out there to be found in the wild. And people get really excited about it for that reason. I liked your quote. You had a quote that said something like, uh, I'm going to read it. It said, eating wild food is an art of nostalgia, both for the natural abundance and the material poverty of the past. It's like we want to re-experience a time when human meant something different than today but with the benefit of escape, you know, that that's kind of like we want it, but we want to kind of stay in our safety zone too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when I was working on that, I was really kind of channeling my own experience of like, you go out for a backpacking trip for two or three days and then you get home and that hot shower is like the best thing that you've ever done because just mm -hmm. having not, you know, been out in the dirt and the wild for a few days. And then that, that experience of coming back to sort of the luxuries of modern life um, is so amazing. And so sometimes I think part of this kind of desire and nostalgia for wild food is, you know, I think life was also very hard when you had to go out and hunt your own dinner every day. I mean, it wasn't all glamour. Um, and, and yet there is a way in this country, partially because of our past the hunter is very much romanticized in a way. So I, you know, I, we kind of have a, a dual personality in this country from what I've seen. And maybe you guys can speak to your own thoughts on it. But on the one hand, the hunter is elevated and romanticized as sort of this figure of the past and um, Western exploration and all this stuff. And on the other hand, the hunter is kind of demonized as being someone who's, you know, full of destruction and, and not necessarily in touch with modern life. And I think that's also what I was trying to get to at this sort of hunting being both archaic and modern. You know, it's, it's a practice we've done for most of our human history, and yet we use the most modern technology often to go out and hunt the people who go and bow hunting aside or whatnot, you know, that, that really take it more seriously on a primitive level. And, and I was just really interested in that contradiction because I think it mirrors the contradiction we have in ourselves of really feeling alive and connected when we're out hunting or eating wild food. And yet also having that gratitude for being able to come home to have shelter and warmth and running water. Right. It's yeah, no, it's, I love this, the sections when you, you really talk about, about that and the, um, and the complexity of it. And I think, I think it is, it's, it's such an individual perspective of whether the hunter is celebrated in romantic ways of the past or modern uh, or villainized as as someone who's just taking uh, or someone who's leading the charge in conservation. There's just so many different mm -hmm. perspectives on it. And that's one of the things, you know, a lot of the 
groups that Todd and I are part of and a lot of the work we do is is trying to bring forward the perspective on hunting that, that he and I have always had throughout life, which is very much a a, a, a reverence for life out in wild places when you are part of that harvesting process and, and a very different idea of what a, what it means to be a hunter than maybe a lot of the popular culture has, has, has characterized it as. Um, so yeah, you know, and, and when you talked about in the book about, um, sort of this tourism, a, a respite from modern day, um, uh, complexity that happened. I think it was, was it in the late 19th century, maybe? Mm-hmm. In North America? Yeah, the rise of bird hunting in the Americas. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, even, even building these lodges that, that, that were rustic in nature because that was the whole idea of getting out. I, I think that, that idea for 99% of the Western world that does hunt today, that is still relevant in terms of you know even though Todd and I are are are, are avid hunters, it's still it's an activity that's core to who we are and our identity, but it isn't a necessity day in and day out. It is something we go do during the season. It's part of our lifestyle, um, but it is really a break from the day to day modern lifestyle. Um, and so I, I really thought about that a lot when you talked about that in the book. And as much as, you know, I, I wish it wasn't, I wish it was more of a, of a, of a, of a core. I think, I think it is, there's a certain amount of, of tourism in that just because of the nature of where we live and the time we live. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, there's a whole conversation. I've asked several times about why I hunt and there's a lot to unpack there. That's not a simple question to answer. I mean, I can spew off a lot of reasons of why I hunt to have responsible connection to my food and to connect to the outdoors and to to be an active participant in nature. I mean, ultimately, a lot of it comes down to the fact that it's who I am, you know, and it's the most responsible path that I've been able to take. And yet, like, I think everybody has to kind of look at that themselves. You know, it's like when people ask me about it, I, I can't make that decision for anybody else. I can explain why I do it. I can explain the benefits to it. But ultimately, I think that there is a curiosity. Um, and if, if through that tourism kind of scope, people can get connected enough to act, to save wild places and to make good decisions on the ground, then those benefits are worth it. You know, it's just like, how do you reach people when we live in an urban world? How do you get to them, speak their language and relate stories that they can understand to compel them to make a difference, get involved? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a tourist town. So I have a very kind of complicated relationship with the idea of tourism. Um, In many ways, our economy runs on tourists. And in other ways, tourism has skewed it so that housing prices are really have gone up. Local people don't use the sort of town square as much because it's a space for visitors. So I, I definitely don't think tourism is just bad. I think it's complicated. And part of what I loved in writing this book was bringing all those contradictions forward. Cause I think people have a hard time holding contradiction in their mind. And yet so much of the world, so much of ourselves are sort of built on contradiction, right? Like you might hunt because it is both an escape from your cell phone and, you know, emails and sort of daily life. And you might also hunt because, you know, you feel the most like yourself when you're out in the woods, you know, and those two things are kind of, they're the same and they're different and they, they can be held at the same time within you. So 
I don't think that hunting as a touristic sport or as a recreation is necessarily a bad thing. And as we've seen in this country, so much of conservation funding has come from hunting and come from the price of tags and all of that. You know, what I'm interested in, and I think you guys are as well, is like, how do we expand that to give as many people the possibility of doing that? People who did grow up in urban environments and would never even think of it. People because of both, you know, historical legacies and current inequalities in the way that the world is. And, and I mean, I think it's our heritage as humans to be able to go out and do this. I think everyone should be able to have that experience. And as you mentioned, too, in terms of the ethics of eating meat, you know, since I've gotten back in New Mexico, I've stocked my fridge with as much game meat as I can from, you know, my dad became a hunter, I would say five, 10 years ago. He grew up in Brooklyn, moved out into New Mexico in the 70s, and then recently just decided he wanted to learn to hunt. He had a friend. And so he goes... He goes uh, horse packing in once a year and goes elk hunting. And I'm always like trying to get the meat out of his freezer. <laughs> I'm like, dad, just give me another steak. Come on, you have enough. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I think for him, that's transformed him as well to be able to have that experience of killing an animal and then eating it. You know, I think everyone in the world should do that, whether it's a hunted animal or a domestic animal. I don't think, I don't think you should eat meat unless you've killed an animal personally, but because it just, it, it's for your own benefit. It makes every time you sit down to a meal of, of meat so much more incredible because you realize what's gone into that, you know. I think the other thing that I wanted to try and bring out with this book was just the sense that we are part of this larger ecology. You know, we're not separate from wild nature. Every time we sit down for a meal, it's an ecological act, whether we realize it or not. Um, and being able to hunt and forage and fish uh, you're just even more aware of those connections and of your role, you know, of every, humans are not that different than any other species. We have an impact on our environment. Um, it's just that the scale at which we've now impacted the world is so much larger than, you know, something, some other kind of animal. Um, I often think of like in New Mexico, we have these red ants and they actually might be an invasive species from uh, South America, but wherever they build their colonies, nothing else is growing around that, you know, like they, they transform their little patch of earth to the point where they exclude other, other creatures. And, and humans have done a very good job of that. And then we've created the ecology where domesticated animals in some ways are thriving. I mean, I think I have this quote in my book that there's a hundred thousand house cats for every tiger in the wild, mm -hmm. you know, so we, we have created these in kind of in connection with wild nature, we've created these, these different ecologies. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. Where were we? <laughs> it, it's great. It's great because like I, I was really, I was kind of taken with the notion that you, you were talking about kind of toward the end about a rewilding process, right? But that in juxtaposition of post-nature world, mm -hmm. you know, so like just all the, the dynamics around that and the differences and the nuances and where are we? Where do we go from here kind of thing? Right. Well, you know, finishing a book is hard for a lot of reasons, but part of it is trying to come up with a satisfying ending. And I really didn't want to write a book that was like, and here's five things you can do tomorrow to, you know, be more environmental, partially because there's a lot of books out there that have those kinds of prescriptions. And partially because I think it's a larger change that we need. It's a change that comes both internally and externally in terms of how we view ourselves as part of this larger wild nature. But yeah, I mean, I think scientists sort of talk about the idea that there's no such thing as wild nature left, that humans have impacted, whether it's climate change, whether it's nutrient cycles, you know, we move more bulk material around the planet than the planet does on its own at this point in terms of like rivers moving sediment, you know, we move more dirt around the world as humans. So we have become 
even more of an ecological force on our own right. And that's both a great responsibility and in many ways, we were still just like this tiny blip in this like really complex, giant, you know, system that we kind of have no idea about. I mean, we know a lot. We've really discovered a lot, but we really don't know a lot too about how, how all this stuff works. You know, the rise of the coronavirus is another example where the land use changes, the food desires, the kind of configurations of our global trade has led to the emergence of this of this zoonotic virus. Um, so how much was that our responsibility, right, versus sort of the natural occurring ways that humans and the environment interact? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff about what does nature even mean? What does wild nature mean? What does rewilding mean? What is our responsibility? And again, back to that question of hubris, kind of starting with the position that we don't know at all, I think is a good place to begin in how we, we address some of these issues, you know, how little we actually know. Yeah. Mark, what do you think? Well, I was just, you know, it, um, it is all so complicated, like you said. Too I mean, complicated. Let's go back to something easier. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you just take the uh, you you bring up coronavirus, and I was I was going to throw that out. I, I I've been wondering about since this happened, and the conversation about you know it originating in the wet markets in China, and I've heard calls for outlawing all all you know aspects of, of, of any wild meat being sold. And, you know, we've done that in North America with, through the Lacey Act and in the mm -hmm. early 20th century. However, I, I think it could be misguided also from the standpoint of trying to legislate, you know, elimination of this, this superfluous elimination of connection. Because it's exactly like you said, Gina Ray, we're, it, we're, we're connected to, to nature whether we try to change it or not. So when I think about you know, meat alternatives that are created or anything. I think they're all folly because it's just that we, we need to stay. It's important for us to stay connected. Um, you know, we need to be stay healthy and need to be careful. But um, I don't know. Those are it's it's complex issues. So let me ask an easy one. Or actually, I got two questions for you. Number one, um, in your journeys, what was your favorite wild meat that you that you ate? Um, my favorite wild meat, I actually really did like the moose meat, but partially it reminded me of elk, which I, you know, grew up eating, but, and I ate a lot of wild boar as well, which I think is pretty delicious if you cook it correctly. I was not a huge fan of alligator. Uh, that one was pretty weird. <laughs> I ate alligator in, in Congo. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, this book, it's, it's makes me want to try more things, you know, it's like, what other... So Wild that, birds can I eat? <laughs> that was my next question then. That, that's that's good context for it, which is, are you thinking you might become a hunter? Yeah, I would really love to. I just moved back to New Mexico. I was living in New York City and came back actually pre-coronavirus. But And I still have a fair number of friends who hunt here. But yeah, I think I, think I just missed turkey season, but I was hoping to, to go on some wild turkey hunts. And so I need to, I, it's something I would like to do for sure. That's or at great. least like marry a hunter so I can always have access to fresh game. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they both work. They both, they both work. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think banning, just to get back a little bit to the, the wet market conversation, so much of this trade is already illegal and underground and involved in large scale transnational criminal networks. So just banning it doesn't necessarily fix the problem because it continues to operate in the black market. So 
And and as you said, like, I mean, E.O. Wilson, who's a biologist, his idea is sort of half Earth, where we just put half of the Earth aside to do its own thing, and humans live in dense cities and have nothing to do with it. And, you know, I, I think that's a horrible idea. I think that I think that we just, we are so much a part of this. We, for 99% of our history, we didn't think of ourselves as separate from wild nature. And so, you know, for me that it's like bringing that idea back. How do we start to understand ourselves as part of the system? Um, because, you know, we're happier when we're out in wild nature. It's this biophilic thing where we just feel good. You know, I feel so sad for people who've been stuck in cities during this, this time, because going for hikes here has been the only thing keeping me sane, you know. But we also have to recognize, and I think this is, again, part of the complication and the issue is there's seven and a half billion people in the world. How, how do we engage people with wild nature? How do we make it a part of daily life, um, given that that's just a huge impact and a huge number of people that want access or that their access has impacts on that wild land? It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is complicated. And it's like, you know, what are the trade-offs? It's also the demand side of things, too, is interesting. Like, just quickly on your book, like talking about the demand side of things, like you were talking about the black market, and you think, okay, the solutions there are like regulatory solutions or whatnot. But then there's significant layers of complexity there with cultural preferences and personal values and Mm -hmm. tastes and everything. And it's kind of like the same with the outdoors it's like okay so we live in this world with all these people seven billion people and like what are the trade-offs and how do we create access what does that even mean and Mm -hmm. and where do you go from there you know yeah and i do i do think at this point we still need to get like the work you guys are doing is just get as many people involved and interested on some level because as we've said you can't care about something unless you have a direct experience and relationship of it you know, it's fascinating, too, to watch how popular things like planet Earth are. I mean, people are just craving this stuff. They're sitting at home watching wild animals because they don't have that experience in their daily life, you know. So I think it's really inherent in people to and that's something that we can tap into easily is that whether we realize it or not, you know, we're all we're all connected to this. And another thing I've been talking a lot about is sort of like this mass extinction that we're going through. I think we're all experiencing some level of environmental grief, whether we realize it or not. There's some level of sadness and stress and anxiety knowing that, you know, millions of species are going extinct around us. I mean, and like I said, whether that's something that on a daily basis you wake up and you're like, oh, crap, like every, you know, more and more species are going extinct. Or if it's just sort of this background tension that we all feel, I think humans are very much, you know, connected to that as well. Yeah. Mark, do you have any other questions for Gina Ray? No, I mean, I, I think this is, we could, we could probably go on for, for hours with it. And uh, I, I just, I, I want to say, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, the book is great. I, uh, I love your storytelling ability in there. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult, complex topics, but, but wrapped up in great storytelling on your journey. And so I, I've, I recommend any anyone and everyone to go out and, and give it a read. Thank you. Yeah, I keep having to give the caveat in these these interviews. Like, it's not all doom and gloom and, like, complex thought. There's, like, some really fun adventure writing in this as well, you know. There's a love story and, you know. Yeah. So it, it, it's great. There's a little bit of everything. And, like, yeah. you know, I liked how you we'll, – we'll wrap this up. You, you kind of structured it into kind of, like, three parts. What have we forgotten and lost over time? And then, like, what do we still desire? And then, 
and then like the cycles of famine and feast with it all. And if you're interested in those topics, check out Gina Ray's book here. I'll just go back to saying like one of the basic things we can do to keep people connected is to share food with them around the table. Wild food yeah. and the stories. It's like it's not just what goes on the table, but what goes around the table. And wild food is a great opportunity to share stories, to talk about how that connects to nature, how we can connect to nature and the conservation benefits and what's gained and lost. And connect to ourselves. I think, you know, mm-hmm. you're so right. I, I talk about that in the book that, you know, one of the main differences between domesticated food and wild food is that wild food has a story. You know, you, it has an experience of going out and capturing it and connecting to it. So I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing and, and the, the, you know, desire to have these conversations. So it's really, it's very cool. Hats off to you. <laughs> well, hats off to you as well. So Gina Ray Lacerba, you've got your book. It's um, Feasting Wild in Search of the Last Untamed Food. People can find it out there. On, anywhere, online, anywhere, anywhere. I saw it on yeah. Twitter. It's on Amazon. It's anywhere you find it online. Pick it up and read it. You'll be glad you did. And we'll put show notes in for like links and stuff for you. It's a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, it was such for- a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.